From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week, we bring you in-depth conversations with the biggest names in filmmaking. Today, we're featuring a conversation with Charles Burnett, whose 1990 film, To Sleep With Anger, is now playing here at the Film Society in a brand new restoration. Also on today's episode, we're sharing a Q&A with filmmaker Kirsten Johnson, whose new film, Camera Person, is now playing in select theaters. Charles Burnett was a preeminent figure in the Black independent movement of the 1970s. To Sleep With Anger starred Danny Glover as an enigmatic drifter who pays an unexpected visit to an old acquaintance in south-central Los Angeles. Despite critical acclaim, the film was largely overlooked upon its initial release. Now, 26 years later, it returns to the film society in a beautiful new digital restoration. Burnett sat down with film critic Ashley Clark over the weekend to discuss the film for the Film Comment Podcast. We're sharing an excerpt of their conversation here. To hear the full interview, download and subscribe to the Film Comment Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. You were not interested in, in commercialism, were you? And I'm interested in that balance for well, you. No, we didn't, even though Hollywood was there, we looked at it as not an attraction or anything like that, or, or, or want to be. It was just the opposite. Uh, it was a thing that really destroyed who we were. I mean, was was part of this this conspiracy, so to speak. So we had these negative feelings about it. No, it, it, the thing that we screwed up on was not really understanding uh, the whole structure and how to how to sustain ourselves. How do we had the purpose? We had talent. But we didn't have the mechanism in place. We didn't didn't have to be a lot of money. We just had to have a diverse group of people working with us, like people who didn't necessarily want to be directors, you know, who wanted to be in different aspects of supporting film and socially, either, either producing uh, writer. I mean, like not necessarily film writers, but you know, like journalists like yourself and things like that, you know, and people who who had a business savvy, as opposed to filmmakers who had just had this. You know, in many ways, it was limited because their abilities and 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 awareness and knowledge was limited. And so we never really like this whole thing about LA Rebellion. You know, it could have been something. a term that was Clyde Taylor came yeah, up with yeah, in yeah. the mid '80s. Yeah, Clyde Taylor, good person. But in 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 a sense, looking back on it, I can see where he can where where that would have come from. And we were rebelling against the studio system and the images and things like that. So that part of it is true and legitimate. But at the time, I don't think if you would have asked us then, we had certainly said about the rebellion against or against the studios and images, but not as, you know, like it's stated now in a sense. My, my problem is that we could have done something better if we just had that little bit of knowledge about what we could have done and invited other people in to be a part of it. And presumably that's applicable to, to young filmmakers of color today. Yeah. In a rapidly changing landscape of distribution and media consumption, I mean, would you say that that, that is still absolutely a part of it? You have to look at it as a business if you want to survive in it, and and you want to create jobs. You want to uh, otherwise, say for example, like if if you want to make a film and you have your friends to do it and things like that help you and things, okay, that can only last for so long. You know, it has to be an industry where you have if if you have uh, non professional actors, they get paid where they start learning and become trained professionals at some point, you know, where they can make a living, where if you call upon them, you know, they have the tools now already from, from the past and they make a living off of it instead of reinventing the wheel every time you go out, you know, and then boring people and exploiting them. 
You know, there were things we, we could have done to have made the whole process sustainable and better. We didn't, you know, we were just filmmakers. Now, I mean, obviously coming from, from London and, and coming from a background of knowing, you know, John Acumfro at the Black Audio yeah. Film Collective, it was interesting here you speak before about how you felt that, you know, when you went to Europe, mm. um, you actually had arguably more support and, and more mm. feedback than you did in the States. Mm. Can you just talk about that for me for, for a bit? Like going to Berlin, for example, in yeah. 82? Well, two, two, two things. One, I think here, because, you know, this connection with, with the studios and things like that are producing and getting exhibited films didn't exist as, as such. You know, we knew we were making these sort of marginal kind of fringe films that are going to be ghettoized, if you use that term, because when we first started, the, the, the big production we, promotion we did have was with Pearl Bowser, who's here, and Oliver Franklin, who's in Philadelphia. They put together a tour of these of our films when there were enough of them. You know, and, and you know, like Kathy Collins and in, in here in New York, and and Bob Gardner and and a bunch of other folks here, and we visited local communities uh, centers and things like that, and so we screened our films there, which was the biggest audience we had, I think. It never really crossed over into a white area and, and, and things. It was only in the in, in, in the community. Went to Europe. It was a different ball game. It seemed like the, the the festivals were looking for some new exotic thing, you know. And you know, you know the festivals are always trying to find something new, you know, uh, to, to beat the other festivals to it, you know. And so this whole thing about black independent films was a phenomenon to a certain extent, you know. So everyone wanted to get, to get in on it, thankfully. But there were people, you know, like Bill Greaves and was, was was one, and and Bill Gunn. Bill Gunn did Ganjin Hess, his film was there earlier, and uh, I remember, because we were all there together at one point later, and and we sort of shared the same experience. One of the things, speaking about jazz and things like this, and Julie Dash, we felt as though we were like these immigrants in the, in the early days, you know, in the 40s and back in Europe, experiencing this renaissance, so to speak, uh, and discovery, and coming back and and getting this kind of injection of, of possibilities and things, you know, because... Our, our, our forms were accepted, you know, and talked about. When I went to, and, and Bill Gunn was a perfect example. His, his film was very well received. And he was telling me that the, that the, uh, that the press had followed him up to the, to the door of the airplane. And in those days, you know, you could, you could walk almost to the guys who were going on the flight, people, up to the door of the plane. You know, it was just that free in a certain sense. Now you can't even get to the airport without getting searched and whatever. And so, but anyway, press were following all the way up to his to the door of the plane. He was saying, but when he got to to the states, he landed total silence. Nobody, no one addressed him. No one. Um, I had the same thing would happen. I, I won a, 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 some sort of recognition in Berlin, and it was all over the paper in Europe and stuff like that. You know, um, all over. When I got back to the states, you know, there was nothing. Even in the trades, they talked about the food in in Berlin. But but not, nothing about the film had to, did very well at the Berlin Festival. It must have been incredibly disheartening. It was expected. It wasn't. It, it was like, you know, here we go again, kind of a thing, you know. But it was what it was, you know. It wasn't so bad because you you shared in the same kind of situations that other people have gone through, much more talent than other and things like that, you know. But you feel like a, because of that, a certain kind of connection as well, ironically. But no, I mean, but that experience. And the European acceptance, as as 
is not, I mean, they wrote it about it like it was an art form, like it was unique in itself, and it was an art form. And it sort of validated our experience, you know, in movie making and things like that, which is very, very important. I was going to say, as a filmmaker, I mean, do you, you know, every filmmaker has a different relationship with critics and mm. criticism. Are you someone who thirsts for kind of engaged, intelligent criticism of your own work and people really trying to dig into what you're going for? I mean, some filmmakers don't read critics. Some filmmakers mm. hate critics. Mm. How do you feel about that? I mean, you have to look at two things. One, people are different. You know, people don't like things, dislike things, depend on so, so, so many circumstances. So that's a given. But the problem, the critics, I... I have a problem with those who just hate your film, you know. That's just like just look at it a certain way. You say, where in the heck did he come from, you know, or she, whatever it is. But no, I mean, but people who have legitimate differences, you know, whether come from misunderstanding or whatever it is. I mean, the idea is to communicate. If you're not communicating, you have to re-examine. Well, what did what did I do? And it may not be that anything you did wrong necessarily. Just some people. I remember I was trying to do this film when we had this writer and um, these. Producers and we were talking about the film. It was a, a, a really great novel by this lady. I can't think of her name now. It was about three generation of women, and so I was going to be directed. And this writer was trying to develop the story with this production company, and so one of the producers there, the only thing he identified with that he talked about a lot was in the story that the woman's father, one of the characters, shaved and used talcum powder a lot, you know, and he identified with that. And so anyway, we're trying to get these two. Three narratives together. You know, the most critical thing was to get these two, three stories gelling, you know. And so the writer, she finally got the, the thing working. And so we gave this, the, 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 the treatment to the producer, one of the producers. And his comment was he, he didn't like the thing because there wasn't a mention of the talcum powder. And so we're saying, now, we have bigger fish to fry, as, as the cliche goes, you know. You, you, you can't breathe from the, just the, the notion that, is this guy serious? I mean, that's something you can add anywhere. But the biggest thing was getting these three stories to gel, to, to, to sort of work together. And he's talking about, he's talking about the talcum powder? I mean, so we can imagine, you know, that's the way people are, you know. And, and so you run into people where you just have to, to, to say, yeah, I mean... I'm going to look out for hidden talcum powder. I don't, you know, films no. from now on. You've never seen it in my film. <laughs> hey there, this is Eugene Hernandez, Deputy Director here at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Thank you for listening to our podcast, The Close-Up. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to get new episodes delivered to you every week. You can also rate and review the show on iTunes, which will help us reach more cinephiles like you all around the world and help us make this podcast even better. Thanks again for listening, and now back to our show. Kirsten Johnson is a renowned cinematographer who has worked with documentary filmmakers like Michael Moore, Laura Poitras, and Barbara Koppel. In Camera Person, her debut film as a director, Johnson takes the stunning images inside, around, and beyond the work she has shot and recontextualizes them in order to construct a visceral and vibrant self-portrait of an artist who has traveled the globe, venturing into landscapes and lives that bear the scars of trauma both active and historic. The film was the closing night selection in last spring's New Directors New Films Festival, and it began its official theatrical release this past weekend. 
Here she is discussing the film after the screening at New Directors really, New Film. It was a really small group of people who made this film, and the belief and the work of these two extraordinary women is a huge reason why we're here tonight. So, Marilyn Ness, producer, and Daniel Varga, co-producer. Well, I was just going to start with one question for you, Kristen, but I think it probably will involve all three of you, which for you is basically what brought you to make this film after all these films that you've shot and done this work on that made you think to make this, this beautiful film and talk about that, but then talk about where the two of you came in and how you all helped to form this into the beautiful piece it is. Yeah, really. well, thank you, Marina. I mean, I never imagined making this particular film, and this film, uh, as many in the room know, arose out of a profoundly difficult uh, failure, I would say, a loss and a failure, which was a film I started to make in Afghanistan, um, and that one shot in the walking sequence that you see with the young woman with a headscarf that you see from behind, I had made a film uh, with her and with the young man who's blind and one eye, Najib. And when she saw the finished film, um, she said, I'm afraid I can't be in this movie. It will be too dangerous for me to be in this movie. And so that film, after three years worth of work, fell apart. Um, and then I started to try to imagine how to create a film without showing her face. Um, and in the course of doing that, uh, I had the good fortune of meeting Marilyn Ness. <laughs> and by the time I met Marilyn, I really realized I needed help because I'd been working alone with one wonderful editor, Amanda Laws, over the course of a couple of years. And I was trying to do everything by myself um, and had completely lost perspective. And I was starting, it was basically, it was around these questions of permission. You know, when you film with people, you know that uh, they, they have a relationship to letting themselves be filmed that is a fluctuating, changing relationship, and you're trying to honor that. And so when this fell apart with this young Afghan girl, I started thinking about all these different stories back in time that had to do with um, questions that I asked myself. And so I was searching back into footage, and that's when I brought Marilyn onto the project. And Marilyn can give her perspective about where she thought I was at at that moment in time. <laughs> so, I mean, I think a lot of people could have just stopped with the first film and said, okay, that didn't work, let's move on to the next. But I, I admired your bravery to keep going with it and, and not only to question how did you miss the fact that she no longer want, was feel, feeling safe enough to consent, but then started bringing in all the other questions that as filmmakers we have, and maybe we try not to ask ourselves or try to keep out of the footage, but she allowed herself to kind of dredge all of that up. And so when I came on, uh, there, was a, there was an attempt to sort of string together all of this footage she was bringing back into the universe, sort of pulling out of boxes and getting directors to let her use. And we sat down and there was a three hour cut that I mostly watched like this. Um, it was, very traumatic. We have since named it the trauma cut, and it was um, it was a lot of the baby in Nigeria and a lot of genocides and pain. And the first thing I said to Kirsten is, "I hope you're in therapy," because <laughs> we were clearly <laughs> she was clearly working her way through something, and I wasn't sure I had the capacity to help her do that. But I thought, well, we could figure out how to make a film. Um, 
And so we, Kirsten searched, and we actually stopped editing. That was the first big maneuver. This, was, is, this is the great act of the great producer was to tell me to stop editing. Right, it was mm. sort of a compulsion happening. And I was like, there's too, too little money and we don't have you know, that much. So um, we shut that off. And then Kirsten spent time, I think, being with material um, and, and bringing more in and thinking about it and processing it. And then we, after about eight months, Kristen fell, found the wonderful Nels Bangerter, who really was the one who, with Kirsten, you know, Kirsten spoke to him for a long time, and he lived in San Francisco, and she lived in New York, and that was also the great blessing, because she couldn't be with him in the edit room. She had to tell him what she was imagining, and then he had a, he was like, okay, thanks, and he'd like drag the footage into his lair and do stuff with it. So, um, so that, was, that was our process. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so, Danielle, when, when did you come in this process? I find it really interesting that it comes from a failure of a film that you made to becoming something very, very, very personal that also has bits of your own life and your family in it. Sure. Tell us how you got into um, that. So, so I was kind of in the periphery during this, the whole trauma cut, uh, like kind of the nitty-gritty. Wrapping the DVD, you know, yeah, not, not sure you'd want it. Um, I actually came on around the same time as Nels Banger came on, and um, I'll just talk about, uh, so, so the instructions for Nels was really like, here are three, three lines, three quick like log lines for this set of footage, uh, do, with it, do with what you know you can. And what Kristen has, has and had a lot of uh, specific memories, things that are beyond the footage that you'll see uh, related to all of those shoots. and. Um, he really, you know, went with it, kind of bearing some of the basic notes in mind. And uh, he made this 40-minute cut, and that's around the time I came on. And um, not, not having known where it came from, it was quite an incredible experience to watch this new version of, uh, of what the film could be. And it was uh, us three in a room, and uh, Nels, you know, on Skype joined us later for notes. And Kirsten was actually very, it was a very emotional um, moving time because what Nels did looking through all of this footage probably some footage that she dismissed um, came out with this 40-minute cut that was funny that was beautiful you know you have these elements like the lightning scene and uh, he was you know he really was able to bring out uh, all of the beauty and the joy and like that laughter and that human connection that I think you know you see Kirsten having with all of her subjects in the way that she films so um, it was that was kind of a big turning point, and also you know giving the film its own language. Uh, there's no narration. There's very limited cards, and from there on, that's kind of um, figuring out how the film would be as a um, you know both as a feature and all of the you know logistics and practicalities of what you have to deal with to get to that um, phase. That's that's kind of where I joined. Could I could I just add one thing, Absolutely. which is that same screening. Um, I think we all were worried. We hadn't really watched the film through. I mean, and we really hadn't watched the film through since the trauma cut. And with the lights came like up. a year earlier. Yeah, a really I long mean, time we really had before. stepped away. And the lights came up and Kirsten, you know, we were moved and gave our notes. And then Kirsten turned to Nels on Skype and she said, thank you so much for giving me back what I love about what I do. I think she lived with so much sadness and pain and, this, and she got to come back to her work. And we're glad you came back to your work. I think we all are collectively. Yes. No. I, yes. I think we're all glad. And and actually, since we want to get to you, we will go out to you, and maybe I'll ask another question later. So uh, let's see if there are any questions out here. Questions, comments, inside stories. I know it's a nice inside group. Yes. 
So this is a question. How, when, when you're shooting, how do you keep yourself out of the story? Well, I mean, it's so interesting because I don't feel like I'm out of the story. You know, I feel very much there. Um, and I know that I have a responsibility, that I have a pact with the director that I'm working with, and we're trying to follow and understand a story as it's unfolding. But I've always felt like the camera uh, connects me more to people. Um, and one of the interesting things of, of doing this work, of um, going through all of the footage, was to realize how much I've compartmentalized and, and how much the sort of the technical necessity of living in the moment of like, I need a battery, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna, my camera's gonna run out while I'm shooting this baby struggling for its life, how that um, helps you cope in these moments when um, you really are feeling overwhelmed and, you know, obviously also the camaraderie that you share with the people that you're there with. So Laura and I are laughing in the car in Sana while we're terrified about being arrested. Judy and I are gasping together with the axes, you know, with the babies. And you're, you're sharing the space behind the camera knowing that you have a responsibility um, and then sometimes you transgress and you break across the barrier and, you know, like the moment where I ask, um, the grandmother in Sarajevo, how she got her sense of style, because I just couldn't bear anymore to have her questioned around the war. I just wanted to let her, you know, get to be in a different way than as a spokesperson for her victimization. Yes. So his, how, I'm sorry, yeah. how's your vision of... His, so he's just saying you spent so much time around the world, how's your vision of the world changed? I mean, I would say, the thing that I do see very quickly is systems. Like you can sort of understand uh, systems at work all around the world. Um, but I have Nels's work in this film gave me back uh, connections that I hadn't seen before. I'm a person who's very preoccupied with questions of um, injustice around race, and it's so interesting to look at this film and see how much of it is about women's experience at many different stages of life in it. Um, and so that, you know, making this film, I've worked a long time with um, Ginny Redeker, who is always like, women, 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 and I'm always like, race, race, race. And uh, so it was so funny for me to like see this film. It's like, oh, I have been seeing like these, these questions of, family and how do you how do you struggle to keep your family well in times of war how do you cope with trauma after the fact um, so I think that that's one of the things that we wanted to create in the film is this idea of accumulation and at a certain point this accumulation of having been in so many places where it's just like ah oh, like the poor people are getting screwed again and so badly you know like that at a certain point you wonder am I doing anything is making this film doing anything and um, it really weighs on you. We, we actually also saw, I think, through the footage and through the years, Kirsten evolving as a person, right? So I remember the day you blew my mind when I hadn't put the connection together that the, the baby in Nigeria was a twin. Like I just hadn't put that in my head and then she comes and she's like, and then I had the twins. And it was like, and you know she takes that with her to the next shoot with the next babies and the next mothers. And, and I think that, you know, that evolution opens her up in new ways and will bring the next director some piece they had never seen before. Uh, so I was always, you know, I've got, gotten to watch it a few times, but to keep drawing the threads through the material and see connections I hadn't seen before has been 
exciting on my end. Mm. Here. As a cinematographer, what's the ideal relationship that you can have with a director? Uh, I mean, you saw that long list of how many directors I've worked with. I have many ideals, and every single director works completely differently. And then I found they work completely differently on each different film. Um, so that's one of the great joys of being a member of the crew. Uh, and I, you know, I love it when people acknowledge that we as the crew contribute when the director understands that the sound person has as significant things to ask, when the director realizes that the driver of the car is actually more connected to the place than any of us are. And I have many great directors who I've worked with who do that. And um, that's when I feel really excited is when a director acknowledges sort of everyone on the team and everyone that we are filming as equal partners in this act of making a film together. And something that we see here in, in all these different pieces because they say all these things are done really well that the audience should not necessarily notice the sound and how the things look because it's all of a piece. But here you can see just with you know, a quick sound and with images how it all works together. It, that's just been done wonderfully. Yes? Do you feel any different when you were filming your family, your mother? Yeah, I mean, my mother, during her lifetime before she had Alzheimer's, never wanted to be filmed by me and, um, you know, was very, cared very much about her image. And so that in that first scene where you see me filming her at the ranch, I really was sort of sneaking that footage um, because I, you know, sort of pretending I'm doing a home movie, but I really wanted to film her. Um, but you can see my self-consciousness about it, and it really felt like a betrayal. Um, and then the last footage you see uh, where she comes back to life, where she pops back out of the box. Um, you know, that was just me in utter desperation, knowing that she was going to die soon and wanting to um, capture some part of her. But I think, for me, it was really important to include both my mom and my children in this because... Uh, I believe we are all camera people now. We all have phones in our pockets and we're all making decisions about do I play with my child in this moment or do I film them? Do I take a picture of them? My parent is dying. Do I film this moment so I can keep them forever? Um, and we're all facing the ethical ramifications of this all around the world and those images can be distributed out into the world. So I think you know, it used to be that I was one of the few people who could film my family, and now we all are people who can do that. Yes. Talk about going back to Bosnia. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so you're, you're, you're sharing this experience of feeling loss, of having to leave people all the time, which I think was also part of the accumulation for me. And I kept trying to convince Marilyn that I need to go back into Boko Haram territory in northern Nigeria to meet this family with the baby. And she was like, no, 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 you can't go. And, Let's do Bosnia. Yeah. And um, I really wanted to go back, you know, really wanted to go back there and still in part of me does, but it's not the right thing to do for the family. Um, and uh, so I got this opportunity to go to Sarajevo to do a workshop for young Eastern European filmmakers. and. I called Velma, the translator, and I said, will you, you, know, you and Seo drive me up to the mountain? And 
it was such a remarkable thing to have the conversation with Velma and Seo on the way driving up there about what they had experienced since our crew had left and all of the women who'd been raped who keep calling Seo and wanting them, him to drive them around. And, and so, I, 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 you know, even before we got to the mountain, I was like, I got to film with Velma and Seo. Um, but then we got to the mountain and it was a really powerful, amazing time um, with them. And so they were so happy to see me. And one of the things that was really interesting was that they uh, were really excited to hear that I had children because I hadn't had children when I'd gone the first time. And you know, this is, this is a Muslim family in the countryside. And at a certain point I realized, you know, we do this thing when we film of not revealing really who we are to the people who we film. And so um, at a certain point I said to Velma, I think I need to tell the family how it is that I have my children. And um, some of you in the room know and others don't that I co-parent my children with Ira Sachs and Boris Torres who are a married couple. And we live next door to each other and the kids go back and forth and our wonderful nanny Carmenza who takes care of them when I'm away is here tonight. And so I, I was like, I gotta tell them. You know, I gotta tell them that this is the story of my family. And so I'm like, you know, haltingly going through this story and they're all staring at me and it's getting translated. And I'm like, here we go, we're doing this. And I had no idea what they were gonna say. And the woman who is so generous to me in the way she listens to me in the footage, who's nodding for me, she says, the men who are the fathers of your children are very brave people. I'm very proud of them for figuring out a way to have children. And I said, you know what brave is? And she said, I know what brave is. So, you know, it's, it's, it's this thing of like, if you choose to interact with people in an honest way, life is a beautiful thing. Thank you very, very much. The close-up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to the close-up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.